Hi, I'm Eve Figui. In this episode of Modern Law, we discuss the work of the Supreme Court of Canada. You're listening to Modern Law, presented by the Canadian Bar Association's National Magazine. We're back with a new installment of our Supreme Court briefing with Nadia Fendi, a partner at BLG and a member of the CBA's Federal Courts Bench and Bar Liaison Committee. Welcome back, Nadia. Thank you for having me back, Eve. So let's talk about the most recent news out of the top court, and then we'll get into hearings and uh, leaves for appeal and all that stuff. But I think what was noticed recently, and we're recording this on February 21st, 2023, but on Friday, the Supreme Court of Canada released its decision in McGregor, and we'll talk about that case a little bit. But what was interesting was that some people picked up on the fact that Justice Brown had sat as part of quorum, but did not participate in the final disposition of the judgment. And so what happens and what does that mean for the court's work? Yes, I think that definitely was something that was noticed by the profession. And in fact, what was also noticed was that Justice Brown did not sit on appeals in February at all, although he did in January. And so when asked about that, the court's le- executive legal officer, Stephanie Bachan, actually advised that Justice Brown had been on leave, has been on leave since February 1st, and that the Chief Justice, in accordance with the Judges Act, had informed the Justice Minister of that leave. The the court also advised that the chief had made kind of all necessary arrangement for the court to continue its work in the absence of of Justice Brown. And obviously, the court um, was not prepared to provide any additional information as to the reason for Justice Brown's leave due to confidentiality reasons. And so I do think it is um, obviously... Uh, news. One wonders what is going on. None of us will be speculating about that. And and we obviously hope the best for Justice Brown and hope he returns to the court. At the moment, I think one question that is up in the air is what will happen to those judgments where Justice Brown sat on them and have not been released yet. Obviously, at the moment, depending on the leave, one could suspect that the same thing that happened in the McGregor case may also happen in those cases. In other words, they may be released without Justice Brown participating in the judgment. What does that mean for the final disposition? Like, what does that mean for the for how the the majorities are formed or the minorities are formed in those cases? I think that that's a good question, Eve. And I think the the the, the concern would be in those cases where. Um, the dissent versus the majority might be split, and particularly in those cases where it is very tight. Um, you know, we've seen from this court judgments coming out where you know we've had five four splits. Uh, so what does ha- what would happen in a situation where you know the absence of Justice Brown leads to a four four? And I will tell you candidly, I'm not sure <laughs> of the answer to that. Obviously not helpful to our listeners, but I don't know that I've ever seen that happen before. So I'm hoping that that will not happen, (laughs) that the the court will be able to uh, arrive in a majority in those situations. Obviously, I'm sure that the court is very cognizant of that. But at the same time, it also depends on the leave. And it depends on whether or not Justice Brown had already started working on some of these judgments, whether they were advanced or not. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of different factors involved in this. And so it's hard really to speculate what could happen. I think we'll have to see. And regarding future hearings, they can always form a, 
a different size bench. So that that's less of an issue for that. Correct. Correct. Exactly. And this is what they've done in February. They sat five or seven. So that's not an issue. And obviously it avoids any problem with respect to having kind of an even outcome and not a majority. So what else is new at Descartes? There's an electronic filing portal. I think that's a pretty big deal, or it certainly seems to be a big deal for 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 the court itself. Yes. No. I think that the court has been very actually uh, excited about the this big project. They've been talking about it for quite a while, and so the portal was released at the end of last month and uh, has now been available for people to use as of January 30th, 2023. And basically, the portal will now be the main method for filing documents with the court. And so I think that that is really exciting news and not surprising. A lot of other courts have gone down that path. And it's nice to see the Supreme Court leading the way, frankly, and having this electronic way of being able to file material. Uh, The only exception will be sealed and confidential documents, uh, which obviously at this stage can't be filed through the portal. So something new and obviously technology, you know, um, has always been a big part of the court. But I think that now that we see that it's also kind of frontline with the filing portal. Okay. And anything else uh, you'd like to uh, point out to our listeners? Well, the one thing I thought might be of interest to people is the issue of the number of applications for leave to appeal that have been granted by the court. (laughs) Um, There's actually been a lot of talk about that. I know in the profession about, you know, has, has these been going down in terms of numbers. And so I I went back and took a look. Um, First of all, I I will note that last week uh, and and the week prior, once again, the court denied leave to appeal in all cases. Uh, On February 2nd, it did grant leave in eight cases, but five of those appear to all be kind of related and related to a similar issue. And we'll come to that in a moment. So likely to be heard together. So I I, I don't think we can read too much in, in, in that number. But and prior to February 2nd, you know, people had been talking about a dry spell because there had been very few leave to appeal granted in the preceding months. We had seen one in, in January, which we'll come to, the, the John Equino case. There was one on January 12th, uh, the Tompuba case. Again, we'll come to that. And then before that, none since the last time we spoke, you and I, Eve. And so, you know, why has there been so few cases where leave has been granted? I spoke to the Chief Justice earlier this month, and one thing he did point out is that they do have fewer applications than there were in years past. Yes, I, and I think he's right. And I did go back, and there appear to have been fewer in 2022. But I, I'm not sure that that can justify the significantly lower percentage in leave being granted. Because if you look at 2022, I, I did some quick math, and we're looking at about 5, 5.6% of cases where leave was granted. But if you look at 2021, we were basically hovering the, around the 8%, and then in 2020, the 7%. So, uh, you know, one wonders whether or not that's justified. Obviously, there could be reasons for that, right? Like a case may not be ripe or ready or worthy of leave, and that's not a problem. And I think, you know, the court obviously um, it has the discretion to decide which cases it will hear where it might be a bit more problematic. And again, you know, this is just speculation because having no reasons that accompany a decision on leave, we don't really know. But what would be more concerning is if the court has decided to change its approach or its threshold and is making it harder to get leave. Um, I'm hoping that that's not the case. I mean, based on the the, the interview you had, Eve, with the chief justice, uh, he didn't hint at that. 
And I would think that it would be unfair for the court to change its approach without somehow informing the legal profession. But but I do think that that's, you know, the, the lower number of cases is troubling in my view, particularly as someone that practices in, in civil litigation, because obviously, unlike criminal cases, we don't get, you know, application or appeals as of right. We need to get leave of the court. Do we really know what that approach is? I mean, beyond it being a case that has to be in the national interest, um, do we have some indication what the approach is? I mean, over the years, the court has hinted, you know, whether it's through conferences or comments from some of the judges or, or the chief justice or previously his predecessor about it. I mean, the courts have said generally that so it has to be public importance. You know, there's a bit of a national aspect to that, al- although not always the case. That's why you have cases out of Quebec. Um, you have generally to have you know, maybe conflicting lower court decisions. And so that obviously is helpful to get leave. And people tend to say that, you know, if there's a constitutional or charter issue involved, that, you know, you're more likely to get leave than not. So I think that all of those are factors that the court has said in the past they consider. But I I mean, it's hard to tell, right? I'm not sure why less cases this year. Uh, I mean, in fact, we're looking at only 24 cases in 2022, Eve, compared to if you look at the previous four years, we were looking at 33 to 39. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite, it is quite a drop. Having said that, there are some cases. Let's start actually with a few cases that have been decided since we last spoke. What's been noteworthy to you? Do we want to talk maybe about McGregor seeing it just came out last week? Yeah. Let's, let's talk, let's start with McGregor. So So McGregor McGregor deals with the extraterritorial application of the charter. It's a bit of a bizarre case, right? That involves a member of the Canadian Armed Forces correct? who was posted in Washington, D.C. with diplomatic immunity and suspected of committing certain sexual assault offenses, if I've, if I've got that right. Correct, correct. So he was suspected of committing voyeurism and possession of a device to surreptitiously record private communications. And the ultimate question, you're right, Eve, was whether or not, in that case, Section 8 of the Charter was infringed extraterritorially. And so the majority, just to get to the punchline, <laughs> held that the search was reasonable because it had been authorized by Virginia law and they didn't find the need to comment on the extraterritorial application of Section 8, which I know was disappointing to several people in this case because there was a lot of actually submissions made by the court, particularly by the interveners, with respect to the uh, R versus hate case, which was the last time the court had looked at that issue. And so you're right about the facts. I'm not sure there's a need to, to dive deep into it, except to say that basically what had happened in that situation that led to this issue was that because Corporal McGregor was residing in Virginia, but not on Canadian Armed Forces property, obviously they didn't have the same ability to go and seize um, evidence. And so what they did is they asked the Canadian embassy to waive the corporal's immunity under the Vienna Convention. And once the immunity had been waived, they basically obtained a warrant that authorized the search from for his residence, as well as electronic devices. And so the American police walked in, and then they, they conducted the search. Um, they seized several you know, devices and, and searched his home. They also discovered evidence of the suspected offenses, as well as others, And then those devices were removed to Canada and then searched further in line with the Canadian warrants. And so the issue that had been raised was Corporal McGregor basically was arguing that, you know, you had to exclude this evidence for breach of Section 8 of the Charter. 
which you'll remember is, is the provision that deals with, you know, protecting people from unreasonable search and seizure. So that was the issue uh, that had to be decided uh, at the court. Justice Cote, for the majority, found it unnecessary to deal with the issue of the extraterritoriality because she said that the investigative services had not violated the charter. She, she observed that they had, been, they had worked within the constraint of authority in Virginia. They had asked the local authorities to obtain and execute a warrant under Virginia law, and the warrant was authorized for the search and seizure of the devices expressly. Uh, you know, and, and she noted that the evidence of the sexual assault was discovered inadvertently by the investigators while triaging the devices at the scene of the search, um, and that the incriminating nature was immediately apparent. So she, she looked at the test. You'll remember the test with respect to plain view doctrine. And she determined that in that case, they were both met. Um, and so that's kind of the majority's decision. What, what I think is interesting, obviously, is that all the interveners, if, well, most, if not all of the interveners, really had invited the court to either reaffirm, modify, or overrule the R versus HAPE case. Okay, so just, just quickly in HAPE, my understanding here is that, so here the court, this goes back to 2007, and here it was a case of a banker whose property had been searched in Turks and Caicos by local police. And it was found that that search was admissible and that the charter was not binding on local police. Correct. Exactly. And so, you know, various parties had argued various aspects of it. Some of them thought that it was the time to change HAPE. And so you had several of, in fact, as I said, the interveners, their focus was entirely on HAPE. Um, and what I think is, unfortunately, they didn't get the court declined to deal with it at all. But what is interesting about that, and I think this is a kind of a, a good advice in terms of procedure, and we'll have to see what is done on this, is the court really did um, scold, I would say, it's probably the right term, the interveners for even raising the issue of hate. Because according to Justice Cote and also Justice Rowe, who wrote a concurring reason, that issue had not been put before the court by any of the parties. And so Justice Cote noted that it was inappropriate for the interveners to supplement the record on appeal with this additional issue. And, and Justice Rowe went even further and said, look, it's up to the parties to control their case and decide which issue to raise. And the interveners should not take a position on the outcome or raise new issues or add issues. And they can't raise further evidence or supplement the record. And he, and he raised a few interesting points. I mean, the one thing he said, look, you might cause some prejudice to the parties because obviously these issues weren't raised below. So the Supreme Court doesn't have the benefit of the lower court or a full evidentiary record. And also other interveners or proposed interveners that may have been interested by this issue wouldn't necessarily have the opportunity to present their perspective because they wouldn't necessarily intervene. So that was kind of like Justice Rowe and I think Justice Cote's approach. But then you have also Justice Karakatsanis and Martin who completely disagreed with that and said, look, the role of interveners is to provide useful different submissions. And that's exactly what the interveners in this case did. And, and the other point that resonates with me is that they said, look, these interveners were granted leave to intervene on that basis. You know, when they sought leave, as you know, Eve, when someone is interested in intervening in the case, they file a notice of motion, they file an affidavit, they often file a factum in support of their motion where they clearly 
set out their proposed submissions. So the court knew they had signaled their intent to criticize HAPE and suggest revision to the framework. If the court wasn't interested or thought it was inappropriate for that issue to be raised, why grant leave to intervene in the first place? There's been a lot of talk about interventions, the quality of interventions and how interveners should go about making their case to the court. Again, I asked the Chief Justice about this a few weeks ago, and his answer was essentially that you know you need to enlighten the court and basically repeat a little bit what you said. Don't take the party's side in this and try to advance arguments that haven't otherwise been presented. But there seems to be some confusion or there seems to be a difficult a difficulty finding a balance. And maybe maybe it's internal to the court. I agree. I mean, the challenge is, on the one hand, you want to be different than the parties. But then on the other hand, you can't add to the record, comment on the outcome or comment on the facts. So <laughs> it's always very challenging. So I think in the past, what interveners have done is try to focus their arguments on legal issues. And often it meant maybe kind of framing the legal issues a bit differently. And the court generally, I think in the past, had been okay with that, although we seem to now be seeing a bit of a different approach to that. I mean, one thing I would note is in the States, as you may know, the court there basically grants leave to intervene to everyone, uh, but the interveners uh, only get the, um, the right to file a factum in writing. So there is no oral submissions. So I, I suppose one thing the court could do is, I think, be a bit more, you know, maybe discriminatory at the outset in the sense that look at the motions more closely in determining who gets leave to intervene um, and also maybe determine who should then get oral submissions. Maybe not everyone needs to get oral submission and maybe some people should get more than the five minutes. They do have discretion to grant more than five minutes if they, if they believe it's worth the court's time. They do. And in fact, just last week, they did that in a case that we will talk about in a moment uh, that deals with labor issues, the Société des Cases No case, where they granted 10 minutes to a few of the attorney generals. Not sure why, but they did. Attorney generals, they, they get all the privileges. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, so what else are what, what else was on your radar in terms of decisions that were rendered? Well, there's another case also that was released earlier this year, and there was two companion cases. So that's the Hills and Hellback case. Um, those were two companion cases where the court had the opportunity to clarify the legal principle that govern when the constitutionality of a mandatory minimum sentencing provision is challenged under Section 12 of the Charter. And, and both cases involve offenders who argue that the minimum sentence in their respective cases constituted cruel and unusual punishment contrary to Section 12. And the court there clarified the two-part test um, where, you know, a minimum sentence is grossly disproportionate and then set that out. I think what people have been focusing a lot on is the second part of the test where um, in, in determining if the mandatory sentence is grossly disproportionate to fit the proportionate sentencing. The court clarified there's three factors. You have to look at the scope and reach of the offense. You have to look at the effects of the punishment on the offender. And then you have to look at the penalty and its objectives. And so I think that's the section that people have been kind of more focused on in terms of the judgment. So this question about the reasonable hypothetical test, is that unusual? Uh, you know, people did focus on it. And is it... Uh, or is it something they've used in the past? 
Well, I, they had used it in the past. And I think the reason why it came under scrutiny here is because the Alberta Court of Appeal had specifically um, you know, invited the Supreme Court to abandon the use of hypothetical in the context of this analysis. And I think that it was a kind of resounding rejection on the part of the Supreme Court where it's affirmed the use of the reasonable hypothetical. Um, and, and frankly, that was in line with the Supreme Court's decision in Noor, where, you know, the court had said that. So it really does confirm that mandatory sentences will continue to be subjected to strict constitutional scrutiny. And you'll be looking at re reasonable hypothetical. The court said, yeah, that's appropriate. There's no issue there. And it's here to stay. And think that we've seen a lot of members of the bar and especially the defense bar kind of welcoming that reaffirmation by the Supreme Court um, under the pen of Justice Martin. They also rendered a ruling in Transportation Safety Board versus Carol Byrne. They did. Um, so that decision, uh, a 7-2 split, basically upheld the lower court decision permitting the production and discovery of a cockpit voice recorder in the context of a class action against Air Canada. And so what the court explained in that case is in what circumstances, you know, onboard recording can be released. Um, the decision has a major impact on kind of aviation, rail, and marine because it, it does diminish the importance of privacy and safety goals that had you know, generally animated the prohibition on the use of onboard recording. And so it does give parties in a litigation where there is a VDR or other onboard recording, and it is relevant kind of tools about how to obtain those voice recording um, as well. So the court in that case said, look, you have to look at two criteria. Uh, in order to determine whether uh, the onboard recording will be disclosed. One, if the public interest, well, you have to look at the public interest in the administration of justice and disclosing it. And then also the public interest underlying the legislation protection of the onboard recording. In other words, you look at the privacy issues of the pilot and the crew, and, and you have to kind of balance those out um, and decide whether or not the onboard recording will be disclosed. So I think an interesting, obviously very narrow issue, but interesting case um, that, that will have an impact in that industry. So there have been a few hearings as well. So we can obviously expect rulings to come from those in the coming months. Which ones were notable? There's certainly a Commission Scolaire Francophone des Territoires du Nord-Ouest, which I know has been on your radar for a little bit. Yeah, it has. So that one was heard uh, on February 9. And it does raise important question about constitutional right and charter values with respect to language rights in Canada. And it involves... Uh, the denial by the Minister of Education of the Northwest Territories uh, with respect to six applications for admission to French language schools that had been made by non-rights holder parents in that territory under a ministerial directive. And so the, the parents had applied for judicial review of the decisions. Um, and, and though not the focus of the case itself, one of the important issues that had also been raised was significant issues with securing French language translation during the proceeding themselves. And so we saw several interveners actually granted leave to talk about that very issue. You know, we had, again, a, a very active bench uh, at the hearing. Uh, they really focused on whether Section 23 minority language right extends to non-right holders and also focus on the right to address the court in the language of the council's choice. And so you had, you know, a lot of questions from, from the part of the bench on these issues. And, and in particular, the court questioned whether the appellant's request regarding the incomprehensible interpretation that took place at the lower courts 
would require that all administrative tribunals also be bilingual. So you could see that the court was concerned about a slippery slope. And in the context of the hearing, the chief justice noted that this would be the case in an ideal world where every litigant could speak to the court in their language of choice. But to make such a declaration would have implication far beyond this particular case. Uh, the court also had trouble addressing the issue of making a declaration on the violation of Section 133 on, for the first time in this case, given that the Court of Appeal hadn't addressed it. So you, you had interesting kind of comments. And you'll remember, Eve, that the case also deals with Dore. And we saw a few interveners deal with that. So you had Justice uh, Kazir and Kote specifically ask question about that and insisted that Section 23 is not anti-ethical to the use of Dory simply because it has built-in limits. So th there was discussions between the, those two judges and the interveners on that point. So I think it will be interesting to see what the decision of the court is. I, I personally am, am very interested in it, just given the aspect on language rights, but also Dore, which has been a case that uh, has fascinated me. So TBD. There was another one out of the territories, which is an interesting one, which is uh, out of the Yukon essentially involving a discrimination based on Aboriginality residents. Correct. So that's the Dixon case. And that one was heard also earlier in February. And I think it, it promises to be quite the historical decision, I think involves kind of the balance between individual rights and Indigenous people's collective right to self-government. Again, we had at the hearing quite an interesting, very <laughs> uh, involved and dynamic panel. I, I would say that uh, there was persistent questions asked of counsel for Ms. Dixon, um, especially toward the start of the submission. Uh, there were fewer interruptions on the other side, a softer line of questioning. I don't know if that reveals where the court might be going, but there was persistent questions on how the charter applies under Section 32 uh, or as an alternative route, and several of the justices inquired about that. And there was questions also about, you know, the, the proposed balancing exercise that uh, Dixon was putting forward um, and why, you know, does it this have to be under Section 1? Um, Justice Kazir also questioned the relationship between Section 25 and 15. So, so, what, so what's, what, what's the tension in this one? What's the issue between these collective rights and the, and the residency rights? I mean, this is one of few cases dealing with the appropriate scope of Section 25 of the Charter, which concerns the rights of Indigenous and Aboriginal peoples as enshrined under Section 35 of the Constitution. And um, the ruling's political, I think the ruling will have political and historical significance built because of Indigenous right for a very long time, pushing for self-government, and that's part of the process for reconciliation. Uh, and I think what the court's going to have to do is, is really balance the Section 15 rights of the individual, so, so Dixon, with that right of, of self-government. Because you'll remember the facts of the case concerned Cindy Dixon, who was precluded from running for the First Nation Council based on her uh, off-settlement residency in Whitehorse. And so in that case, the, the, the final agreement, self-government agreement, required that any member of the First Nation Council uh, must reside on settlement land. And so that was the debate. That's the tension in that case. And so she had brought an application under Section 15 of the Charter claiming basically that that had been violated. And then so you have that Section 15 and obviously the self-government right under 25 and 35 that are at play. Turning to upcoming hearings, we have another Division of Powers and Environmental Law case involving uh, 
the federal government and uh, the province of Alberta. Yes. So we've talked about this case before. You'll remember, Eve, uh, I think it's it's definitely a case that people are watching for. It's actually taking place over two days, um, just given, you know, how uh, important this case is. And I think also... Could it, could it be because there are a lot of attorneys general uh, <laughs> intervening? There's a lot of interveners. We, we're looking at 22 interveners and group of interveners. So definitely a lot of attorney generals, but also a variety of different groups. I mean, we're looking at kind of environmental groups. You also have certain indigenous groups that are involved. You'll remember this case has basically made the news, you know, it's it's basically this appeal of the Alberta Court of Appeals decision last spring, which considered the complex kind of legislated issues around the Impact Assessment Act um, and, you know, division of powers again, you know, where does the role of the province uh, start and end compared to the federal government? So there's a lot of interesting issues. And, and I think that this is all obviously in the wake of, you know, a few years ago, of greenhouse gas case that came out. Um, so I think we'll have to see what happens on this one. As I said, a lot of interest, two days of the court's time. Yeah, it's like division of powers is, is coming back in vogue. It definitely is. There's an access to information case. Journalists might be interested in this one. Yeah, definitely. This So this one is out of Ontario. It's, it basically has the Ontario, um, the Attorney General of Ontario versus the Information and Privacy Commissioner of Ontario. It also involves the CBC, and that relates, you'll remember, to the Premier Doug Ford's mandate letters. So there was an access to a request made to act to get a copies of those letters. It had been refused. The government arguing that they're subject to cabinet privilege. So the question is, you know, the scope of cabinet privilege and the interpretation of that exemption under the Access to Information Act. So another very interesting case that will get heard um, in April. And I guess labor lawyers will be interested in a case coming out of Quebec, Société des Casinos du Québec. Yes. So that case is being heard also in April and addresses the issue of unionization of first-level executive. We don't often have uh, these type of labor cases here, but I think it basically revolves around the definition of employee under the labor code. And there's also uh, issues of the charter and, and freedom of association that are being raised by the parties. And I think there's been a lot of interest actually in this case following the Court of Appeals decision. I think we'll have to see. I, as I mentioned earlier, there's a few attorney generals that have intervened as well, and, and the court has decided to give them a bit more time in oral submissions. <laughs> 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 Lucky them. Okay, so let's conclude on some leaves to intervene that have been granted. You noted that there haven't been that many. There was a group, four or five by my count, that have to deal with the issue of independence of military judges. Uh, and I'm just kind of wondering, so this is Edwards, Brown, Thibault, Pooh, and Corporal Christmas. How big a deal is this that we are looking at the issue of independence of military judges? It actually is a pretty important issue, and, and particularly in the wake of Justice Fish's report of a few years ago. And you may remember that uh, Justice Morris Fish um, released a report a few years ago entitled, you know, the report of the Third Independent Review Authority to the Minister of National Defense. And so under the National Defense Act, there is a provision in there that provides that every few years there needs to be an independent review that is conducted of the, the justice system there. And so Justice Fish is the last one to have done one of these in-depth reviews. And one of the issues he looked at was military judges. 
and, and the concerns surrounding the status of military judges and more specifically their independence. Among other things, some of the observation he made was that the fact that military judges are subject to the authority of the chief of defense staff, and you'll remember the chief of defense staff is basically the head of you know, the military, puts them in a position of subordination, which some people have said is inconsistent with the exercise of judicial duties. And so this dynamic, just as Fisk noted, could lead to concerns that you know military judges may be improperly taking into account disciplinary consequences to which they may be exposed if they adjudicate, adjudicate in a certain way. And so, you know, some of the members of the Canadian Armed Forces were concerned that some of these military judges could be tempted to toe the party line. So he, he made several kind of observations about that. He, he didn't comment. And he, he explicitly said, you know, I'm not commenting on the issue of the constitutionality of the status of military judges. But one of the recommendations he made was actually to civilianize military judges which means that you know the members of the Canadian Armed Forces who are appointed judges would then be released from the military and renounce the military rank in order to ensure their independence. So it is definitely an issue within um, the military justice system. I know that occasionally, and I know the court did this with Vavilov, that they want to sort of invite cases to settle a grander issue. I, I just find it a little odd that you have five cases that show up at the same time that all have to do with court-martial cases. And is this something that the court, do you think, might, might have wanted to address? I, I'm not sure. I mean, I will simply say that I think part of it is probably because of the way these cases made their way up the chain. Um, I, I think that, um, you know, th- this issue was probably raised uh, at very, you know, at the same time, if not all, um, in, in, yeah, I, I think at the same time, by defense counsel in all of these cases. Because one of the things you should know about military justice system is that um, basically members of the the Canadian Armed Forces have access to the services of defense counsel. That's part of, you know, one of the benefits they get from being members of the Canadian Armed Forces. So defense counsel, they're all part of the same group of individuals. So I suspect that, you know, they they had made uh, a concerted effort to raise this matter probably all at the same time in in these cases, almost simultaneously, hence having all of the cases come up at the same time. So what else caught your attention in terms of leaves uh, to intervene? Or leave to appeal, sorry. There's definitely one case that has been granted from the Federal Court of Appeal that Jim shot both sides, and that involves, again, issues of Indigenous law. um, And and so I think something for, for people to take a look at, I mean, the case addresses the terms of Treaty 7, uh, so a very specific treaty um, and, and whether they're enforceable uh, in a Canadian court. So I think that will be something f- for people to take a look at. I suspect there'll be a lot of interested Indigenous interest group that will want to intervene. Uh, another one that is probably on people's radar, those that practice in bankruptcy and insolvency, is the John Aquino versus Ernst & Young. And so that deals with um, issues of uh, Section 96 of the Bankruptcy Act. And it's corporate attribution. It's Correct. Exactly. Exactly. It's like basically the focus is on the application of corporate attribution in the context of insolvency. And so this case, I think, is expected to have a significant impact on the availability of that section uh, of Section 96 challenges in insolvency. So we'll have to see what comes out of it. 
Um, another case of interest uh, for those that have um, maybe um, interested in language rights, that's the Tambu Pa case that I mentioned earlier. I, I mean, there's a lot of language rights these days at the court. Yeah, although this one's in a criminal law matter, right? Correct. It is in the criminal law matter coming out of BC and basically deals with, you know, concerns the exercise of language rights provided in the criminal code and, and the duties of judicial officers in ensuring that those rights are upheld. I think that's the issue here. And, and what are the remedies if such rights are breached? I think so that's another issue that will be considered by the court. I, once again, I suspect that a lot of language rights interest group will be intervening in this one. And then there's Earthco soil mixtures. This is this has something to do with the quality of topsoil. So there's got to be something exciting about this. <laughs> well, well, it deals with, you know, I, I don't know if it's about the topsoil per se, but it definitely deals with uh, issues surrounding the sales of good acts. So anyone that kind of has a practice that looks at those issues and more specifically whether exclusionary clauses constitute an express agreement that's sufficient to shield a seller from liability from breach of the implied condition under sales of goods act. So, um, you know, interesting issues, uh, certainly for, for those that practice in this area. Well, look, we still managed, I think, to uh, do, uh, we managed to talk a good 40 minutes about this. So it's not as if the court is really, uh, you know, it's, it's not as though the court doesn't have its hands full with a lot of different cases. So fair enough. Nadia Fendi, I want to thank you again for joining us for this Supreme Court briefing. And I, I know it's of great interest to our listeners and they appreciate your insight into this. Thank you very much, Eve. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If so, please share it with your friends and colleagues. And if you have any comments, feedback, or suggestions, please feel free to contact us on Twitter at CBA NatMag and on Facebook. And please visit nationalmagazine.ca to read our latest analysis of legal news in Canada. And I want to say a big thank you again to our producer, John McGill, dedicated as he always is to making listening to the show more enjoyable. And thank you all for listening.